Father, it is because of that mercy that we can stand and sing and praise and worship, commune with you and commune with one another by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we worship you today. May we not squander this opportunity to love and fellowship with one another, but more importantly, to worship you by singing and studying and then obeying your truth. So, Lord, today we come to you at the beginning of this and ask that you would move in our hearts, enable us to obey your truth, to understand it, the eyes that would see and then obey it, and then proclaim it to the nations. We pray this especially for those who don't know you, cause in their heart an understanding, enlighten their hearts to the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for their sin, that Christ produced a righteousness, not their own, and they can have this by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, grant them that faith. Grant them repentance to follow after Jesus. All of us need your strength. All of us need your spirit. So we come to you asking for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It is our distinct privilege to join with one another for worship in the Word and proclamation of the Word. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew. And today we're going to start look more earnestly, more carefully at the words of Jesus up on the Mount of Olives one day before he would be arrested and tried illegally and executed. Jesus had told his followers that the temple, and by extension, the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And of course, they're fearful. They want to know when. When will these things happen? And when will that tribulation be over when the Son of Man comes to take his throne on earth? And boy, sometimes we wonder the same thing, don't we? Even if we fully accept the fact that we don't know the day nor the hour, we can grow pretty weary of this world, can't we? You long for a day of justice. The heaven is of just broadly speaking, the world, the wars, national, international strife. Add to that our personal issues, health, family, relationships, money, our own struggle with sin. And you add to that all of this truth that you realize that every society eventually hates Christ, eventually hates Christ's followers, Christians, and persecutes Christians, already seeing it even more and more in our own country. This all makes us cry out with the saints, how long, O Lord? Well, the disciples, particularly the 12 apostles, were feeling all of this and more. The leadership of Israel was clearly pitted against Jesus. He was a threat to them from the very beginning, and the three years of Jesus' ministry, it became increasingly clear that he was on a collision course with them. To make things worse, so to speak, Jesus had just condemned the false religion of Israel and the leaders up there at the Temple Mount the week of Passover. He'd even pronounced woe on those who blindly followed these religious leaders of a false religion. This nation was to be God's nation. They were to be the one group of people in all the world who would recognize and welcome the Savior. But they didn't. At best, they counted him as a mere prophet from whom they could receive physical blessing. At worst, they joined the Pharisees and others who plotted his death. This was the Son of God. This was the Son of the Master. This was 
the king. And as we just heard, they in that era were hardened. They did not carry out what they promised when Joshua was bringing them into the land. And so Jesus told them that the curse was coming. Their nation would be destroyed, it would be scattered. And the pinnacle of their identity as a nation, as a people, the temple up on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem would be completely destroyed. War would come upon Israel. And what's more than that, Jesus said to his followers, because these people rejected him, they would also reject his followers, and so his followers would be persecuted. The disciples themselves would suffer persecution and death. Just put yourself in the sandals of the disciples, how frightening it would be to hear this. As things got darker and darker, it looked like you were destined for something terrible with the leaders of Israel. Ask this question, when will these things be? What's the sign of your return? Probably very similar to the question you or I would ask in that moment. Jesus says, hardship, persecution, death, these are big pills to swallow. Most of this chapter, Matthew 24, was fulfilled in that first century. It is emblematic of our age, the church age. You know what I mean by emblematic. It is characteristic. It is a type. It is a shadow of the way it's happening even now. It's the norm for us until Christ returns. In one sense, in a strange way, hardship is comforting. Why? Because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This is all foretold by Jesus. This is all part of his plan until he returns. And we don't have to watch the news like everyone else with anger and outrage and fear and frustration, astonishment of what's happening all around us. More than that, Jesus gave his men some instruction on how we are supposed to live in these dark days. If we're going to live through hardship and persecution and death, we ourselves need to seek to follow His commands. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to note what Jesus says instructively to His disciples for what they're going to face in that time as the temple is destroyed and terrible, horrible tribulation comes upon the land of Israel and Jerusalem is destroyed and the, the temple mount is destroyed. And again, seeing that as a type of what we experience, we can take those same instructions and apply them to our own hearts. All right, let me read to you. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Originally, I was going to take us all the way to 28, and then I, I was going to show you all four of these commands in here, but I think we're only going to make the first two. So let's look at these first 14. You'll see it pretty clearly, pretty plainly. Jesus gives some instruction as he gives this information. Just follow along as I read aloud. Matthew Chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will, be, they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth, the birth pains. And they will deliver you over to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. It was April 14th, the day before Passover, 70 A.D. Things had not been well in occupied Israel. Four years earlier, up in Caesarea, yes, the very same Caesarea where Jesus originally set up shop, the Jews rebelled. They refused to include the worship of Caesar in their synagogues. They did not want to sacrifice to Caesar, who in their minds was a false god. So they, they rightly refused that. There were some reprisals. The, if you remember our study at the beginning of the book of Matthew, as Jesus set up his ministry out of Caesarea, it was a very international place. There was a Roman garrison there. And so there were reprisals. Some people were killed. Now the Jews rose up against the Roman garrison and killed about 6,000 Greeks and Romans. So the Romans were looking for revenge. And they found an opportunity by laying siege against Jerusalem the day over Passover, 70 A.D. A siege in the ancient world is a terrible thing. It would be a terrible thing now, but especially back then, there's no connection with the outside world. They cut off all food. They cut off all water. In a mostly desert region, this was a horrible time, some pretty awful conditions inside the walls of Jerusalem. If you remember, during Passover, the area around Jerusalem swells to about 3 million people. So even inside the city walls, there were many, many people just teeming with people. And all these people were now trapped without food, without water, without hope. They're told that the people inside the walls of old Jerusalem began to fight among themselves, actually, forming different groups, different sects, and different factions that actually warred one another about how they should handle this. And as the food and water ran out, the people of Jerusalem prayed on the elderly, the young, the children, and the women. When I say prayed on, what I mean is they engaged in cannibalism. It was a dark time. All the while, outside the walls, the emperor's own son, General Titus, relentlessly attacked the city. I was reading an account about it, and people would go to sleep, and they would hear battering rams slamming against the walls, slamming all night long, trying to take down gates and walls. Titus attacked the city with siege ramps, battering rams, fire. In fact, it was a fire that was lit all over the Temple Mount, which is what led to the downfall of Jerusalem. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Titus actually wanted to save the temple. He wanted to make the temple into an altar for his own father, whom he believed was God, as he thought of himself as well. Vespasian, that was the emperor at the time. 
But some of his soldiers actually lit the temple on fire and it was too late. It burned to the ground. It is said in that time as the fire burned, so much smoke filled the sky that the sun and the moon looked blood red as they looked up into the sky. And if you've ever been around a forest fire, some of you have seen this. The sun and the moon turn red. The city walls fell in August, so it took about four months, this siege. Four miserable months. And as soon as the walls fell, the inhabitants, most of them just citizens, they're not war fighters, just citizens began to stream, running for their lives, literally, out of the city. The Roman soldiers running in the opposite direction to take over and take any loot they could find. As they did this, the Roman soldiers would kill anyone in their way. I'm going to read to you an account of that day. Everywhere, everywhere there was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered wherever they were caught. Around the altar was heaps of corpses, and it grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered down to the bottom. Josephus, the author of that record, went on to explain that when Titus and the soldiers could not find anyone else to kill, they decided to aim their rage at the structures of that city of Jerusalem, destroying everything. Quote, it was so thoroughly laid even, laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was nothing left to make those that came thither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Josephus described Jerusalem and the surrounding area. He said, And truly, the very view itself was a melancholy thing, for those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country in every way, and its trees were all cut down. No one that had formerly seen Judea in the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert could help but lament and to mourn sadly at so great a change. For the war had laid all signs of beauty to waste. Dark and terrible time. As the people ran out, they scattered abroad. Many people left that region of the world altogether. They scattered into Europe and Asia. A few people, some of you know this story, a few of them collected in one of Herod's old fortresses, Masada, and began to live there. They lived there for two or three years, but again, the Roman soldiers decided to lay a siege. And again, some of you have been there, and you've seen actual the siege ramp that they built leading all the way up the side of that mountain. The people, knowing the terror of a siege, instead of resisting anymore, once they realized it was over, they all committed suicide. Two men actually decided they would be the last two after killing everyone else. They'd be the last two, and one would fall on his own sword. Symbolically, and in a sense literally, these were the last Jews to inhabit Israel until 1948. 1.1 million Jews died. 97,000 were captured and enslaved. These are massive numbers, even by today's standard. It helps you understand why Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, are so passionate about Jerusalem and so saddened when they look at Jerusalem and they see 
a skyline that is all Muslim, a religion that was invented 600 years after all this. But don't get too emotionally attached to the plight of Orthodox Jews. This is divine retribution. That is not to say God will not show mercy on the Jews once again, but it is to say this was all part of God's justice. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 4 and 5 says this. God is speaking. He says, For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house of kings who sit on the throne of David, riding chariots and horses, and they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Listen to Luke chapter 19, 41 to 44. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. When he drew near, saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, meaning the time that the Savior had visited. That's Luke's fuller account of what Jesus said here in Matthew. Look back up to chapter 23, the very last paragraph. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus used the same language as God did back in Jeremiah. As sad as it is, this was God's punishment for the people who had used and abused His own son for their own personal gain and then murdered him. This is the people who, after receiving servant after servant of the master, then took his son, stripped him, and killed him to the jeers and cheers of the crowd. This is all according to God's magnificent plan to take the gospel beyond Israel and to the world. We heard this earlier. By their disobedience, God turned his mercy to the nations. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. The burning question for the disciples as Jesus began to predict all this, is when is this going to happen? And if this suffering is indeed emblematic for the church age, when is that going to end? When is the return of Christ and how are we to live in this era? Like I said, there are four things I've noted from this passage. We're just going to do two of them today. All four of these come from the very words of Jesus. You'll see this as we read it. There are several things throughout this section, instruction, command that Jesus gives as he instructs them. As he gives this prediction, he gives them instruction. He gives them command. And what are these commands? As if, this, if this time of tribulation for Israel is taking us all the way uh, to the end of their time, but even beyond that, again, picture in a picture, a symbolic way, taking us all the way to the return of Christ, these commands are important for us to understand as well. And Jesus said in verse 1 and 2, the temple will be destroyed. That's what every stone being thrown down means. And then when he sat with his disciples privately, the twelve, they asked, when is this all going to happen and when will it all end? 
Verse 4, Jesus answers with a command. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. The verb there, present active imperative. The first thing out of his mouth is a command. So point number one, you may want to write this down, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Now, in this first part, Jesus aimed this command at one particular issue, but we'll see that there are more issues that he covers as he moves through this. He says in verse 5, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. But he begins to broaden it. We see it later on. Verses 23 and 24, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, the disciples there, leading up to that great and terrible tribulation, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, one thing that would be present are deceivers. Deception people posing as a return Christ, people posing as some sort of prophet or foreteller or some sort of man of God or woman of God, producing quote-unquote evidence or miraculous sign. There will be false signs, and they should, Jesus says, anticipate these things and not be naive about them. Don't be fooled by them. Don't be led astray. Now, if you look at history, what happened is exactly what Jesus said. Not long after Jesus spoke these words, several people rose up. Some of them even claiming to be Christ. There's one fellow named Thutis. He started gaining popularity in Israel just a few years after Jesus gave this prediction. Supposedly, he showed signs and wonders, and people were amazed and fooled by him. Hundreds of people, perhaps even thousands of people, followed him. He amassed a little army, an army of about 400 uh, Jewish soldiers. These soldiers were moving around and kind of evading the Romans. They knew they could, couldn't fight against the whole Roman army, but they were trying to do some sort of damage, and the Romans were chasing them, and he got to the Jordan River, and the Roman soldiers were coming after them, and he claimed he could part the River Jordan, just like Elisha and Joshua and Moses did the Red Sea. Of course, he couldn't do it. They were slaughtered, and Thutis was beheaded. After him was another guy. This is all before the destruction of Jerusalem. Another guy named Judas the Galilean. Now, there's several guys named Judas, many people named Judas in that day. And actually, several guys named Judas the Galilean. This is not Judas, uh, the one we know, one of the apostles. This is not another Judas the Galilean that rose up at an earlier date. This is Judas the Galilean that came after Jesus. He revolted against the Roman rule, the Roman taxes in particular. He survived for quite a while with a very big uh, following. Possibly many of them were involved, even Judas himself may have been involved in the siege of Jerusalem. And he could have been, we don't know exactly, but he might have been one of those factions inside the walls of Jerusalem while it was being sieged. He was destroyed as well as Jerusalem was destroyed. By the way, both these fellows are named in the Bible. We, we see them later on in the book of Acts chapter 5. You can read about both of these fellows uh, just briefly, just mentioned, but if you look at history, it lines up as you would expect perfectly with what Scripture reports. 
As that first century went on, there were others who came seeking to deceive people of God. You can imagine. I mean, here's this mass of people, thousands, even tens of thousands of people. You, you think about Pentecost, tens of thousands of people who follow this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe that's an opportunity for you as a, as a false teacher to, to snatch a few of these, to get an audience, to, to tell them that you're just a part of the whole system. You, you're Christian just like them. And many people took advantage of this. And you see this even throughout the New Testament. You see all this deception and false teaching happening. In Timothy's church, church of Ephesus, there's a threat of a couple of guys named Hymenaeus and Philetus. In Galatia, it was the Judaizers. In Jude, it was the mystics. In 1 John, it was those who denied the deity of Jesus. In fact, in just about every New Testament book, there is mention of the threat of false teaching, false prophets, false Leaders, false messiahs. It was so prevalent that when Paul was writing Titus, not Titus the general, but Titus the young preacher at Crete, when he was writing Titus and helping him find men who are qualified to preach, he included one of the qualities is that he must be able to rebuke false teachers. That's a requirement for being a pastor. And you think about the most popular pastors today. When's the last time you heard them rebuke false teachers? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1.9. Ephesians 5.6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. 1 John 3, 7 and 8, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practice righteousness, righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This was all happening in that first century exactly as Jesus had predicted. As it got worse, as things got harder, as the Romans began to tighten their grip around Israel and wars were being fought, there were all these false teachers that rose up. Exactly as Jesus had predicted. Now I want you to think about this. Of, of all the things that was happening in that first century, wars, persecution, exile, destruction, temple, direction of the temple, death, all these things that were happening, the first thing that Jesus addresses is false teachers. The biggest threat is not death or destruction. The biggest threat, he says to his disciples, gentlemen, the biggest threat is false teachers, false Christ, false doctrine. As I said in the beginning, this is an immediate prophecy for their time. I explained to you those things that happened there in Jerusalem. You know all that Jesus said came true. That kind of hardship, that kind of persecution, that kind of death is emblematic for our own age. Also emblematic is the rise of false teachers. That age, the early church, the end of the Old Testament came to a furious, deadly close. We can't read this stuff and not think about our own age, our own day. Yeah, sometimes we get a little bit confused as we read this because we see it as so descriptive of our own day. 
It seems so real to us. Wars, rumors of wars, seismic, climate disasters, death everywhere, and false teachers. So what we can learn is identical to what Jesus wanted His disciples to learn. Just like in their day, all of those terrible things, among all those terrible things, the first and greatest threat to our faith is not physical hardship, but false teaching. It's not politics. It's not the leaders. It's not COVID. It's not global warming. The biggest threat to you is false teaching. That's the biggest threat. Sliding into false teaching. More than 12 years ago, it's hard to believe it's been that long, but more than 12 years ago, I moved from Oklahoma to here. I'd lived in Oklahoma for seven years prior. And I can say, spiritually speaking, for that part of the country, which is the giant western belt buckle of Christianity, the biggest problem, the false teaching they fall for is spiritual apathy, lukewarm, shallow, religious emptiness. Everybody's got it. Everyone has a testimony. Everyone has a baptism. There's a church on every corner, and if you're a good Christian, you're a member of several of them. Everybody's a part of a church. But the problem is that so much of that is empty. Speaking in generalities, of course, not individuals. Speaking of generalities, the problem is a dead religion. When I came here, I very quickly realized the problem is false religion. Yes, the pervasiveness here of the cults, more so than most of the rest of the country, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Hawaiian folk religion, Buddhism, ubiquitous here, but also prevalent, and I think much more subtle and much more dangerous are all those quote-unquote Christian things that are actually more like those false religions, but come in and clothed as sheep. And the prevailing attitude is that you, if you love people, if you, if you really have aloha, you'll just believe and accept and go along and affirm everybody. Don't show any discernment. It says Christian audit. Someone claims to be a Christian, if someone says they are a preacher or called by God, don't compare them to Scripture, just believe it and nod your head and smile and that's how you show aloha. Don't dig too deep, just celebrate and believe in them, even if there are serious doctrinal issues. Just celebrate it, drink it all in. Well, there's a temptation to all Christians, not only just in Hawaii, but to all Christians. And I think that's why Jesus mentions it here, from the top. And that's why after he mentioned it, Jesus sends his disciples out of the world and they begin to put together the New Testament. They've been authorized to put together the New Testament. They begin to put together the New Testament and in every book there's these warnings about false teachers. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. Grow in knowledge. Grow in truth. Learn the truth. Don't be naive over and over and over again. Discernment is not about asking whether or not the song or the preacher or the church moves me deeply. Discernment is about finding whether or not it measures up to Scripture. Don't be naive. Don't be led astray. This is the first command that Jesus gives His disciples in the face of all the tribulation. It's the first command that we need to have on our own hearts as we face the trials and tribulation of our own day leading all the way up to the day of Christ's return. The second command we find in the very next verse, Matthew 24, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
Here's the command. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Point two, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Jesus had preached this to them before. Remember the very first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You'll eat or drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now there he's not talking yet about the tribulation the disciples would face. It's the same exact principle. Lay up treasure in heaven. Focus on the eternal. Life is more than just what happens here in this short life. When these disturbing things happen, he's explaining them. When these disturbing things come upon you, wars, rumors of wars, tribulation, persecution, death, don't be anxious. He just told them back in Matthew, you're not going to add a minute of lifespan if you worry. If you go around concerned, stressed out about all that's happening. And you're not going to add to your life somehow. You're going to become a better person if, as all these things happen and the temple is destroyed, that you, that you are overcome with anxiety and worry and doubt. Show your trust in God. These things must take place. He says, even then, the end is not yet. But again, there there is a type of our own. You could say it's the beginning of our own, the Christian age, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, famines, earthquake, faithlessness, people falling away. That's all of us until Christ returns. So how are we to act? Not only it's not be naive, but avoiding anxiety. Start by memorizing Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Many years ago, I preached through Philippians. We went through this. That verse says a couple things about anxiety. First, when you have anxiety, go to God. There are three words there. They're all synonyms in that verse, verse 6. Prayer, supplication, request. They're all the same thing. I know it sounds pat, but go to God. Spend your time going to God. If you take just a few minutes to analyze your prayer life, I think all of us would admit we're a little, we fall a little short. Maybe you fall short in terms of sincerity. You say a lot of prayer, but it's just, you're just, just kind of saying words here and there. It's not really sincere. You're not thinking through it. Maybe you don't pray a lot, but when you pray, it's sincere. Or maybe, if you're like me, it's a little bit of both. You're not sincere, and it's not very much. Go to God. Struggle with anxiety? Go to God. That's not to say there aren't physical things that can happen to an individual. But from a spiritual sense, this is the only way you're going to solve spiritual anxiety is by going to God. Go to God. Spend time praying, letting your requests made known, make your supplications known to God. Why? Because that is announcing to God, I believe, I trust you. I trust that if it's your will you'll remove this hardship, or if it's your will for me to have this hardship, I'll become a better person. I'll become the person you want me to be. You know, sometimes God doesn't want your healing. He wants your spiritual healing. 
Sometimes He gives you hardship so that spiritually you would grow. It's not all about the physical. So He says, go to God with prayer, supplication, request. You go to Him and it's announcement, Lord, that I trust You. Second, the Apostle Paul there in that famous passage out of Philippians says, be thankful. Again, this is a theological position. Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Thankfulness, this is a position. This is a theological attitude. It's saying, I stand here believing that whatever happens to me, if it's physically horrifying, if it's terrible, it is all ultimately, if it's happening, it's under the sovereign hand of God. And so, Lord, though I don't want this cancer, I don't want this death, I don't want this rebellious child, I don't want my marriage to break up, I don't want this, Lord, I know it's all under your sovereign plan. Not that you won't be righteous and do your job and take advantage of all the, the things around you, the blessings we have, like doctors and nurses and counselors and all that, but at the same time, Lord, I, I trust you. I take this position that you have brought this into my life, you've sovereignly coordinated this, and I'm thankful. This is a way of not being alarmed, the very thing that Jesus says. I think some of you need to hear that today. Your life stinks right now. You've been anxious. You wake up in the middle of the night, there's worry, there's something heavy, there's something dark weighing down on you. Go to God. Be thankful. But I know this is all under your plan. If it's your will, will, take it away from me. But if not, use it to sanctify me. I want to grow. If we do this, Paul says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can say it this way, the unsur unsurpassable peace will overwhelm you, not your circumstances. You want that, don't you? No anxiety? This is what Jesus was telling His disciples. You're going to face all this stuff. It's going to be horrifying. And what if someone told you, and you, they were, you knew they were a trustworthy source, source as a word from God, you knew, they'd tell you knew what they told you was true, and they said, by the way, your life is only going to go get worse from here. And it's going to include torture and death. Does that make you anxious? Now go to God. And thank Him. In fact, let me make a crazy, bold prediction. Your life is going to have a lot of hardship. In front of you, if you're not suffering some of this already, in front of you are difficulties you can't even imagine. Hardship with family and friends, children. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face some catastrophe. All around you will be division and strife and, on the broad scale, wars all across the globe. And you're going to face sickness one day, and you will die. Thanks, Pastor John. You're so encouraging. <laughs> now, this is all happening. But you can face all of this with joy, can't you? You don't have to be anxious. You can go to God. You can believe and follow Jesus, first of all. And then you can face all these things in the way in which He 
told us by not being naive, filling your mind with truth and knowledge and discernment from Scripture and avoiding anxiety. Well, Jesus goes on. These are two negative instructions. Don't be naive. Don't be anxious. And next time we'll look at two positive instructions, Lord willing, as we come to next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for what you've given us here. We thank you for all that you've told us. And through Christ, we know that all these things came true in that first century. But we also know that those those things became really a pattern for all that happened and all that will happen leading all the way up to the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, the instruction you give your disciples there is so important for us. It tells us how we should live, how we should respond. And we know, God, until your Son returns, we are going to face hardship. We are going to face even death. And, Lord, we want to face these things with the joy of the Lord. We want to face these things with the joy that you've given us in salvation. And, Lord, we come to you. We come to you trusting your Son for salvation. We come to you again and again, needing strength, needing faith. Give it to us, Lord, we ask. We pray, Lord, that we would encourage one another and build one another up. Pray that we'd find in you a a place of refuge and strength. Pray that we would find in your word a place of security and truth. Lord, what encouragement it is to hear these words of Jesus immediately before all these disciples would go on and face very tragic lives. Bless us as we seek to live in a way that would honor and glorify you. Bring us joy in the midst of our trials and suffering. We ask this in the name of Jesus. 